Hello and welcome to Prop Talk, the official podcast of the Property Masters Guild. I am Chris Call, one of the founding board members and current chair of the Education Committee. Our goal with this podcast is to bring us to you. Each podcast will be a frank discussion with a veteran property master discussing the nitty gritty of the craft, as well as conversations with other professionals in the industry, including production designers, set decorators, DPs, directors, and actors, along with every other craft that we collaborate with. Nothing is off the table, and the table is full. to the first inaugural Prop Talk, sponsored by Ben and the Property Masters Guild. I'm Caressa Douglas. I'm from Ben. Uh, We are a product placement agency, and I have spent most of my adult career enjoying the participation of filmmaking through Prop Masters and their craft. And so today, We're hearing from subject matter experts and leaders in the field of property crafts. We have Hope Parrish, who is a pioneer in the space. And we also have an emerging product master who also is leading her peer group. So uh, first up, I want to introduce Hope Parrish. Hope, I always enjoy my conversations with you, and I'm looking forward to the information and the experience that you're going to share today. So if you could say a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Caressa. It's an honor to be here today to have an open forum with women, and I'm proud of what we're doing and the road that we're going to take forward. I'm third-generation property master. My grandfather started in 1929. My dad began in 1953, and I came into Local 44 in 1979. I came in um, at Universal Studios under the permit system of 321 and worked my way up. And with 5,000 hours, and I don't know how many years that equals into, I was able to get a property master's card and make my dad proud. We're going to dig in deeper to, into that. Uh, I don't know what 321, maybe our audience does, but uh, I have some, I definitely, we're going to dig into that story. And uh, Marissa as well, how did, how did you get started? What was the interest or your path into props? Because I do hear a lot of stories about property masters, you don't necessarily always, like hope your experience, not necessarily do you start out with the intention, or maybe you did, uh, going into props. Um, I was always like a very vivacious kid. I was always like sitting, the kind of kid that sits your family down to perform for them. Like you write plays and you do the props and you do the costumes. So it was always a given that I was going to do something in the entertainment world. And in college, I did a lot of acting and directing. I tried to do it professionally right after I graduated and decided very quickly it was not for me. And I uh, applied to a very mysterious looking internship I found on Playbill.com that turned out to be for a Broadway prop company. Uh, And I was like, oh, this is, you can have fun at work. Wow. (laughs) Like, surprise, I didn't know you could have fun at work. Um, And I just never looked back. So I started in props in theater. And uh, when I moved to LA, I was still doing a little theater. That's where I transitioned into film and TV. It's interesting you talk about fun. I think if we all have to work and if you can find a career that you enjoy and is Mm -hmm. fun, you're really truly blessed and and you're fortunate. And that's a common denominator I hear from property masters that this job, it's so challenging and we're gonna talk about those challenges but it's fun. And that's why you keep coming back. That's why you do these 12 hour days and deal with these last minute changes and the problem solving. But I do hear that a lot when I talk to the community about fun and hope you've talked about that a lot. Like, did you come up watching your, your uncle and your grandfather or your dad and say, gosh, they're having fun with these long hours. (laughs) You know, when my dad was uh, starting out in the industry, they did 12 hour days and you know, 7.30 at night, my dad would leave Fox Studios at 7 and pull into the driveway and we'd all have dinner with my dad. And the kids today don't really get to do that because the hours are so crazy. And as I 
as the studio system went away in 85, it started changing where hours were getting longer and things were happening more and budgets were changing. The whole process was, was changing, which I don't have a problem with that at all because I did love what I did. I, I absolutely was so enamored when I was a little girl, my father took us on location. The first time I ever went on location was to China on Sand Pebbles. And we were there, we were in Taipei for, I don't know, eight eight months. And then we went to Hong Kong for a few months and we had went to school there. I went to school with property master, fellow property masters. C.J. McGuire was there. His father was there. There was a lot of Americans, the Peach family, the Endlers. It was just a, a magical time and they needed little toe heads to be the missionary kids. So I actually ended up on set most of the time and not the school. And I caught the fever. I hung out with Kitty, the craft service girl, and just loved being around it and just was enamored by it. And as I grew up, my dad's like, no, you're not going to get in this business. You're not going to get in this business. And they really, there was no women doing this job. You know, it was for me up until the last day of my last show, I loved what I did. Right. Right. So we're talking about the challenges of getting in because you are a pioneer for women in this uh, field. Did it help having your father, you know, having that lineage or it didn't, it was just all based on merit and you had to fight your way in, you know, I think a lot of times in entertainment, you know, there, there's a lot of talk about nepotism. What was your experience? Did it help? Well, my dad always said nepotism is a good thing as long as you keep it in the family. And, <laughs> you know, I being my dad's, uh, you know, oldest daughter and no sons, there didn't seem to be, and my passion I found my passion and I knew that I could be what my dad was. I could find, I loved history. I loved finding things. I loved going to the flea markets in Madrid with my dad and looking for special items for shows. And I knew coming up. And then when I turned about 18, 19, they were pulling permits in and I didn't make the cut. And my dad said, you know, I don't want you to get in and I know I can't stop you. And we had just started the hand prop room. So I was working there and meeting people. He had opened it at the Culver Studios. And um, I just, I, I went to work in a bank because that's what my mom did. And I just hated it. I hated the lunchroom especially. It was just like, I don't fit in here. It's just not my people. And so later on, two years later, they were pulling permits again. And I had been calling CBS. In those days, the prop department hired the crews. And then they'd make a call out to the union. And if their availability list or short list was exhausted. And I was calling CBS, Warner Brothers, Universal, Fox, Paramount, weekly, sometimes twice a week. And I would talk to one of my friends that I met at the ham prop room, Emily Ferry, and I would call her up and just moan the blues about, you know, nobody's returning my calls. Nobody wants me here. What's going on? And in 77, and this is in 1979 where I'm really starting to get anxious. And in 77, Emily literally sued Local 44 to get her card because they were not going to let women in. It was just that, that, that was not going to happen. And so Emily became my best friend and my sister, my mentor. Um, my father is my mentor. My Uncle Bill McSems was my mentor. But Emily was the one person, being woman to woman, that I could actually talk to and really get some good information about how to go about it. And they weren't easy on us. When I got into Universal, that begrudgingly, the department head over at um, Universal um, my father was doing Cheech and Chong's next movie over at Universal, and he walked up to the prop department and said, my daughter's been calling you for three years. Come on, you just pulled 30 people in last night. And that was one of the big steps my dad did to help me get in. And then shortly after that, I got my 30 days at Universal, and I left there as fast as I could. <laughs> and I went on to meet what was going to become my home lot for about six years. Um, I met Bobby Vincent at MGM and I worked there on all kinds of things. I was the MGM floater. So I got to work on Lorimar shows. I got to work. I met so many different property masters at that time and, and people giving me an opportunity. Part of it was there was, there was a double-edged sword. Some were like, Oh my gosh, you're Dennis's daughter. Okay, great. You know, we'll give you a shot. And the other half was like, Oh, 
you're Dennis's daughter. Mm-hmm. We don't want no women in this group. Mm-hmm. You didn't know who was fair and who was, you know, right. not going to be so fair. And But my dad taught me. He said, listen, tell them. And he said, I can't help you anymore from this point forward. You have to do it on your own. And I did one show. There was an actor's strike in 81, mm-hmm. and I went back to work at the Hamprop Room. And I did about three months, and then my dad was starting a show over at Fox, To Be or Not To Be. And he's like, okay, tell Alan goodbye, come work with me on this show, and let's get through some more days so I could get my one card. And during that actor's strike, this wonderful set decorator, Brenda Ballard, and two other people went to Local 44 and said, listen, there's 63 permits, uh, 63 group two and group threes on the books. Let's move everybody up. Everybody's been out of work for a long time, and let's make it an equal playing field. And I'm indebted to Brenda for that because that moved me up where I could actually get called by my dad to do to be or not to be. Yeah, I want to take a take that what you're talking about about advocacy. You know, because I I imagine when you're trying to get in, and and that's where Marissa, I want to talk about that. And just for women, we all need that. It, it's not just a mentor, but who's going to advocate for us and really bring us up. You know, I started at a product placement agency that the Catalyst Group, which you hope knows, and it was all women. It was women owned. And looking back now, you know, God, were they tough on me. And they were tougher than male bosses probably. But that they taught me so much, and it really brought me up really quickly. There was no real room. I mean, we are nurturers, women. But sometimes in the business place, I think we have to prove, really prove ourselves. So we have to sometimes be tougher. You know, so it's, I, I am thankful for, for those women that I learned. And it, if, yeah, looking back, really, yeah, they, they brought me up too and, and held my hand. I don't, I don't think they held my hand all the time, but they, they really, they were really there for me. And, and they modeled that. I wanted to be them. And, you know, Marissa, you just mentioned that you, you came from the theater side and then you came out here. I can imagine if you're new out here. That's got to be really tough. Well, when I came to L.A., I was working in theater. And I think when you come from New York and you go to anywhere else, they're like, oh, you worked in New York. And it makes you more hireable in theater anywhere else. So I I was doing that here. And that's how I started to meet people. And um, I did start to meet some film and TV people, including my fiance, who also introduced me to a lot of my now film friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but my first movie, my first movie ever... Um, was the movie I flipped in on, which is not a normal story. Most people have to work a lot more non-union jobs before they flip into something, which is now how you get in the union, which is very different from you from you hope. The system has changed quite a bit. But that first movie, I didn't want to take it. I was too scared. I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never prop mastered anything that wasn't a play. And the production designer was was a woman and my friend Karina, who's another prop master, told me that I could do it. They were like, you have the skills, just because you've never done it doesn't mean you can't do it. Mm. And that, mostly they gave me the confidence boost that I needed. It wasn't about teaching me how to do something since I think I did kind of know how to do it. Um, although of course I messed up monumentally like everybody does in their very early days, but having other women just tell me consistently that I could do it and that they would help me get through it. The production designer on that movie, she saved me quite a few times when I made like a real rookie mistake. She, she would like look at my mistake on a table and say, okay, how can we fix this? How can I help you fix this before it becomes a real disaster? Those moments are the kinds of moments I try to emulate now on set when something goes wrong or when there's like a young, another young prop master who's trying to get their days. I find that I have gotten that more from my female peers than my male peers. I wonder if it's just the relatability as as the female experience. And, you know, I don't know, over the last couple of years, there's all this touchy-feely conversations and, and terminology, which I appreciate, you know, putting a definition to something. But uh, I think women experience or put themselves through imposter syndrome mm-hmm. more so than the male uh, experience. And um, I know I have. And it definitely threw my mojo off. And when you're starting to question yourself, you're, it definitely throws you off. And then you realize, no, I, could, I know this. You know, and when you believe in that, anything's possible. 
And even if you make those mistakes, I don't know if they're mistakes, they're learning experiences, right? So if we, we flip that and say, okay, I learned from that. And we probably learned more from those experiences. But um, I think it's interesting. Did I mean, imposter syndrome, did you ever feel early on hope in your, your experience that you had to prove yourself more as a female? And, oh, and, my Lord. Yeah. In, in the 80s, there was only three female prop masters on the books. And Barbara Damsky, uh, Emily Ferry, and one other woman. It wasn't Trish or any, they came in later, but they gave me every bad job, every hard job that you could have in the industry, hoping that I would just get so frustrated I would walk away. My dad said to me, I can't, after to be or not to be, he said, okay, I got to kick you to the curb, kid. I don't mean to do this, but if you were my son, you could work with me. But because you're my daughter, I need you to go out there and make your name. And I was so hurt, but it was absolutely the right thing to do. I ended up getting a job at Lorimar for four years as the assistant department head where I got to meet tons of set dressers and property masters and built a prop department for Pierre Beauvais, who was the department head at the time. And the gift for me was that, you know, God has a funny sense of humor. Some of those guys that were kind of mean to me, they'd come upstairs to the foreman's office, which, hi, I'm the foreman, and they were looking for work, and they'd turn the corner and look in there, and Dave McGuire wasn't there anymore. Hope Parrish was sitting there, and they're like, Hi, Hope. So, you know, I got to say things like, no, I'm sorry, we're out of work right now. We don't have anything available, you know. And it was the truth. I never slighted somebody, but it gave me great joy to know that I had maybe kind of turned a curve, you know, and that you couldn't talk to me the way you talked to me when I was at Universal or when I was at Group 2 or 3. You couldn't do that anymore. My biggest critic... The one person that I had to make sure was proud of my work more than me was my father. I pretty much didn't care what anybody else thought. But if my father said, hey, kid, you've got your patent when Air Force One is going across the screen, that is the greatest moment in your life when your father, who's got this legacy, and you're a girl, and you're trying to be, you know, number one son here, <laughs> that was who I, I did it for. I've always done this for my family, to keep our legacy going. Do you feel that as, as women, sometimes you have to have a louder voice to be heard in your position of props? Hope, what do you think? I don't think your voice needs to be louder. I just think it needs to be heard. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's ever, like production meetings, that's a perfect example of where people are quiet. It's like, why? When I first started, that was where all the questions were asked. That's where all the answers came. And you walked on and everybody knew what sub-meetings you needed to have later on. And I'm always the one, unfortunately, that's in the room in these production meetings, raising my hand going, okay, so who's going to take care of the saddles? Uh, okay, so who's going to take care of this? And, um, you know, because my production manager's sitting in there, and when I have to go to them and say, hey, I need more money because of this, mm -hmm. they're not doing that, or you need to move money from Wranglers over to props or whatever, however your budget's, you know, designed, I need them to understand why. And I'm not going to defend myself twice. That's not going to happen. But I don't think you need to be aggressive. I think professional and knowledgeable. You need to back everything up that comes out of your mouth. Yeah, like I'm I'm not usually the loudest voice in a meeting, but I always try to be clear, concise, professional, and always ask the question because I know that if I'm thinking it, someone else is thinking it. So if they're not going to ask it, then I'm going to. And I definitely stopped feeling shy about using my voice in meetings or with high-powered people. Or I've stopped feeling shy around that kind of thing because it doesn't help anyone. It doesn't serve anyone. And I feel like that comes with time and confidence. And uh, circling back, that comes with other people helping build you up and tell you that your voice is worth it. You know, communicating with your, leaning into your support team, right? Yeah. So and making sure they're clear. By asking those questions, it sets the rest of your team up for success, which ultimately sets the shoot up for success, I would, I would imagine. You know, and communication styles, um, I am a little bit older, I can tell you that from my team, and our communication styles are very different. I prefer to pick up the phone and, and call prop masters and set decorators, and I feel like I can get more done through that conversation, And uh, but sometimes the rest of my team, I have a younger staff, and it's, 
it's interesting to watch them communicate through texts and through emails and, and just see that difference and remind me that I'm getting older maybe with my different styles. But Marissa, you you have a style that really sets your team up for success that you lean into more technology or shorthand and that works for you. Yeah, I mean, I think it works for my team. I'm an obsessive list maker. I do like phone calls, but um, while I'm on those phone calls, I'm taking a lot of notes because if I don't write something down, I will forget it because there's, I, I mean, I don't know if this is generational or not, but I feel like there's just so much information always coming at me at all times that if I don't write it down, like it's not going to stick. So I lean heavily on Google Drive. I make a lot of lists. I make daily breakdowns for my team on Google Drive, and then I also print them out. So if they lose them or something happens, there's a digital version that they can always refer back to, but it's got like a scene by scene, character by character layout of every single prop that's playing and every single scene, including repeats, so that they have a place to take notes, make changes, and a way that they can track the day. But I learned that from Nicole Ruby, who also does that on her shows. So when I day played for her, when I was just starting, she handed me that paper and I was like, oh, this is great. Like I, I know what to give these 500 background. I'm not just thrown to the wolves. And I think that's great. The, and that's why we're here today, right? Is to share your advice and your experiences. Because um, I imagine for not just prop masters, but so many jurisdictions in production you're so busy doing your job it, and you don't see other show uh, other production uh, other production prop masters very often so by sharing that information i think that's really uh, terrific you know and, and this, this works for me does this work for you um unless you're i guess passing in the the prop houses halls i, I don't know how you how you you do that yeah i don't i don't know how you did it hope but i um and I still do this where I will do a show or do a project and then I'll go work for someone else and see how they do it. And then I'll pick and choose what I like from their style and apply it to mine. And I, I will go back and forth between working for someone else and then trying it out for myself until I've started to, I think now I've started to like smooth out my, uh, my style. But I have found that working for other prop masters has really helped me become a better prop master myself. How did that work for you? When I left Lorimar, um, I went on to work on Cagney Lacey, and then I went to work with Eric Nelson. I, I did a few shows with him. I started working with Lou Fleming. There were just different property masters that I was was either their third or their second. And then in 1989, um, after I worked with my uncle on Twins, and then after that I actually auditioned for or interviewed for China Beach. And that was my first... I love China Beach. It was a great series. And I did the first full season. And then after that, Eric called me and said, hey, we're going to go to Baltimore on Avalon. I'm like, okay. So I started getting into features. And in 1989, after my season on China Beach, because I now had a prop master's credit under my belt, which, by the way, we had to take a test. We had to read the script, do a breakdown, do a budget, and have this breakdown submitted in order to get your property master's card. So there was a lot of things that we don't have now that actually gave us that training that we could be really great. And that's part of the things I think are lacking where young people might be craving knowledge, but don't know how to get it. But anyway, my dad called me up. I was working with CJ McGuire on Life Stinks. And my dad called me and he's like, hey, my a second unit prop guy here in Chicago is is taking another job. Can you come out on backdraft? Okay. And so I reconnected with my dad like eight, nine years later and didn't stay long, started just working on all kinds of little day playing. And then there was a period of time where they were letting go property masters and bringing in somebody to finish it because of, for whatever reasons. And they were starting to do things like, um, additional photography, reshoots. And so I started just getting hired on all these little shows, Dead Presidents, uh, Swing Kids. I just started and meeting production designers, which I think that if you can day play with another property master that you might be mentoring or friends with, you will learn good or bad. You might learn the ways you don't want to do th certain things. So there is, there's an opportunity when you start collaborating with other property masters. And it, 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 it's a brotherhood, sisterhood for a reason because of that. And a lot of people kind of keep things close to their chest, but 
that was just not who I was or the opportunities that I was given. So you were picking up shows that people had left or when they moved on to something else. So you were like taking the tail end. What was it like walking into someone else's system? Did you pick up their crew also? Did you bring in your own crew? Like how did that work and how did you find your own way among that? You know, when you're when you're coming in late in a game on something or trying to finish something up, a lot of times take on their crew because of the continuity. I know that I was on a show uh, and the property master was removed and they wanted to remove me as well. But the new guy coming in was like, mm, no, she's staying because she's the only one who knows what's been going on for the past three months. So there are those kind of opportunities that I took with me that I would act the same way because you want information. Unfortunately, sometimes personalities don't click and it shouldn't be something that the going out prop master or the coming in prop master have some sort of complication with each other. Because at the end of the day, we're just trying to get this finished. And maybe it's a good thing that it comes out the way it comes out that somebody else has replaced you or me. I was never replaced, but you know, that opportunity could have weighed itself in my life. Um, reshoots was my favorite. Two, three weeks, bing, bang, boom, watching it on a moviola. You may not know what a moviola is, but they would throw up the film on the on the moviola and I would grab screen grabs with the, the editor. He would print, he'd cut the negative, a little teeny smidgen of the negative, and then I'd run over to the photo house and have the picture printed so I could match that scene. And for me, it's like that puzzle where you're trying to <laughs> match something, you know, or find find Waldo in the in the group. Reshoots were my favorite because you became a you were you were a hero if you really were dedicated to fixing this. And I met some of the greatest friends, Thomas Carter, who did Swing Kids. After that, he brought me on to his um, Rock the Vote video commercial, and I mean, just things just opened up. And then my first job uh, as a property master was the net. No, actually, a little Jason Alexander movie for Castle Rock, but it, it went straight to TV. But and it was a lot of fun. But the net was kind of the one that put me on the map. As a side note, the last play that I have done before I transitioned full-time into TV was with Jason Alexander as the director. What a peach. He is the best. He came up with the best props for me to make. Most of them didn't make it in, but he always loved it when I brought him a weird bug puppet that I had whipped up overnight. And he was like, this is great. I don't think it's going to work anymore, but can I keep it on my desk? He's the sweetest He's the man. I, I enjoyed that first job with him, but unfortunately it just was not, it never made the box office. It went right to TNT which was unfortunate, but it was so much fun to work with him. <laughs> I'm always fascinated what you just said, I mean, about the problem solving, but also about that experience when an actor, I mean, does that happen divs or like where they come in or like, oh, actually, I think I should, I, my character would be doing this and I want this prop or you know what, you should make it like this or, you know, um, that happens, right? You oh, God. In, you come in at 6 a.m. and you're like, I was all prepared for this, and now you want to be making banana bread or something. I mean, like, what are those? Can you guys call those those make it happen moments? Like make it work moments? Make it, make yeah. it work moments. Yeah. yeah. Hope you've told me some really good some really good stories about some of your your good make it work moments. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> one make it work that I haven't told you is we were doing Mighty Joe Young, and we were at Playa Vista, and they wanted it to look like Congo, crisp, beautiful, brand new equipment for for Bill Paxton's character. And Bill hasn't come in for a fitting. Everything's been put on a barge, shipped to Hawaii, and I'm over there doing a makeup and hair test with Bill, and all of a sudden he comes in and he says, I want nothing shiny. It needs to be beat up. It needs to be aged. And I'm going, all of a sudden my head goes off. This stuff's in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And I got two days when I get there to take it down. I mean, I want to age it so it looks proper. I don't want it to be like, just throw mud on it and walk away. I want it to have nicks and scrapes and light sandpaper and talk with a standby painter and make this thing become a piece of beautiful, you know, equipment. And that was just one of those, like, and your hands are tied because there's nothing you can do. You can't run to the prop truck and start the process. You got to wait till you fly to Hawaii, meet with your crew. Where's the barge? Let's, you know, and get it going. 
what's that process? And I want to hear, Marissa, about your make it work moment. Uh, you just have to stay calm, right? You can't just be running around with your, your head, you know, like a chicken with your head cut off. You just probably have to stay calm and think, no okay. one can know you're panicking. Yeah. You cannot show that you're panicking. You just go, okay, that sure, absolutely, we can make that happen. You know, um, that's what I hear all the time. You got it. We'll figure it out. There's really no, no. My favorite, my favorite line uh, is, "How much time do I have?" Right. Right. And if it depends how much time you have with uh, what your solve is going to be. Do I have a day? Do I have a week? Do I have five minutes? Ten minutes. Right. Right. I mean, that is the that is the mantra of a of a property masters. How much time do I have? You know, that is absolutely probably come out of all of our mouths dozens of times a day because we are part of the problem solving department. You know, Marissa talks about that one. She really likes, which I was doing a movie with Seth Rogen and Barbara Streisand. That's my favorite. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, guilt trip. My dad had done hello Dolly with Barbara. And I told people on the crew and in production, I said, please don't tell her I'm related to my dad. Don't say anything. I don't want that to be part of the problem. If she figures it out herself, that's fine. So we're doing makeup and hair tests and she comes up and she's, and I said, Barbara, I have these glasses for you. Here's your wallet. Here's your froggy things. Cause she had frogs throughout the whole film. And, and she says, Hope, I just gotta tell you, I can't eat steak for four days. I said, I know, I know, I'm, I'm working on that. I'm trying to figure this out. And I went to my dad and I said, you tell a story about when you did Hello, Dolly, and she's having sitting across from Walter Matthau and she's shoving her mouth with mashed potatoes and you had to come up with something so that she could talk while she's eating these mashed potatoes. And dad ended up you know, with you know, giving her full knowledge, giving, letting her know what it would be. They, my grandmother and my dad in 1967 made egg whites and she was just eating the egg whites and they basically just melted in her mouth. They did a little flavoring on them so they didn't taste like disgusting egg whites. And she was good with it. So I said to my dad, I said, I don't know what to do about the steak. He goes, kid, I can't help you there. I don't, I don't know what I'd do. So I called my foodie, uh, Chris Oliver, and I said, hey, Chris, I said, I don't know what to do with this. And she's like, well, well, let me see if I can work this out. <laughs> and she said, so she comes to the set. We were out at Disney Ranch and she's got her truck out there. And she said, I got it. I got it. We're going to take watermelon and we're going to grill it. I'm like, okay, let me taste it. So I'm tasting it. And I'm like, ugh. I mean, the charcoal from the grill was just disgusting. And I thought, there's no way she's going to like this. And C.J. McGuire, all the years I'd been in the industry, I never knew about caramel color. I don't know what I was thinking. I was making, you know, scotch with with tea and in, in water or Coke and water for years, but never used caramel color. And I said to Chris, I said, you know what? I said, what if you take those steaks of, of, of watermelon and paint... Let's paint a little caramel color on the top to give it the brown sear, and it kind of goes into the juices. And then with a with a edible pen, let's make the marks. Okay. So I tell Ann Fletcher, our director, about it. I tell Barbara about it, and Barbara's like, "Oh, that that that's good. Hope I can eat watermelon. I love watermelon." So we and we also had like the filet mignon that just melts in your mouth. So we're shooting this scene where she gets this 79-pound steak thrown in front of her, and she's cutting into it. And that's just a giant slab of watermelon? Oh, no, it's a giant slab of steak. Oh, okay. okay. And so for the first few takes, she was eating the real steak. And Anne's watching the monitor, and then as she's getting into the steak, now I'm placing matching watermelon with fake sear on the top of it inside there that she can go in and cut. And when she pulls it up, you can see the brown from the caramel color, you can see the pink from the watermelon. And she's just a happy little person, I'm telling you, she's the happiest woman on earth right now. A Couple hours go by and we're filming this and Anne comes in and she says, so when are you guys gonna start using the watermelon? And Barbara looked at her and says, we've been using it for two hours. And I thought, Rockstar, you know, it's like, yes, yes. I love this story partly because it's such a creative fix and it, and the product was so seamless. Like the director didn't even know. And it was, it pleased the actor. I don't know how much time you had to come up with this, but I think it's, it's like a brilliant solve. And part of why I love 
being in the room talking with prop masters like you and like Nicole Ruby and like Chris Call and you know, like all of the other prop masters in the PMG is it helps me reframe the way that I think about problems in a way that I might not have if I was living in a vacuum um, or if I wasn't working for other prop masters or listening to other prop masters talk about their make it work moments. I love stories like that for, I don't know, for the way that they change the way that I'm thinking. Well, you know, and, and I don't know how many opportunities you've had to have an experience like this, but we're, we're also there to protect the actors. That's part of our biggest job is protecting them sometimes from themselves. I was doing Zodiac with Robert Downey Jr. And there's no secret about his history. He was a couple, maybe almost two years sober and kind of fragile, but not really in a way that was bad. He just, you know, we've all kind of been in these situations where we're a little nervous about, you know, coming to a new set. And we're working with David Fincher, who's historically noted for doing hundreds of takes in one angle. Um, I love what his his uh, partner and wife, Sian, told me one day. She said, you know, we, how many letters do you have, Hope? I said, well, I have like 48 of each letter to be opened. I said, I figured that's a good number. If it was good enough for Scorsese, it's probably good enough for David. She said, Hope, we did 102 takes on a poster on a wall on Fight Club, and it was just a dolly track. It's just a little dolly forward, pan up on the poster. She said, I don't, I think you need more letters. But Robert came in. I said, Robert, we made up packs of camel cigarettes for your character to be smoking, but they're honey rose. They're, they're, because I think after a full day, you're going to be wanting something that's going to be less harsh on your system. Ah, don't worry about that, Hope. I'm an old smoker from way back. I'm like, okay. I said, this is my first time working on a digital film. It was the first one ever full-length digital film to begin with. And I said, I'm kind of, you know, new to as many takes as we're doing. I said, he said, no, 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 I'm fine. So we shoot the scene up in San Francisco and he's on the houseboat and he smokes all the way through this whole scene. And the next morning he came in and Paul, my assistant, and I were at the cart kind of getting the day ready. And he came up and he said, hey, Hope, <clears throat> do, do, do you have those uh, cigarettes I can try? I'm like, yeah, I do. I mean, I had a chuckle because we try to warn them. That is part of our job. You know, Sean, Sean William Scott came up to me early in the morning and we're doing a cafeteria scene where there's a, a restaurant scene. And Orlando and David Duchovny and Sean are at the booth and he goes, Hope, I want to really have runny eggs. I want runny eggs so I can be eating them and having the, the yeah. goo come down. You know, it'd be like the amoeba in the movie and it'll just be really gross. I think Ivan will love it. I said, Sean, I got to tell you, you don't want to do that all day. And he goes, no, 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 no. I want to do, no, 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 no. So you follow what they wish. You give them a little heads up warning. And I'll tell you, he was green by the end of the day. And you try to help them from themselves. <laughs> well, it's interesting you talk about safety because for us on the product placement side, we represent brands and uh, and support storytelling through your craft. But I have examples um, when prop masters consistently keep our brand safe. So it's not just the the talent or your own crew. But our brands, uh, in fact, one of my favorite ones, Chris Call, who's also on your board. I tell this story so many times. But years ago, we had Heineken as a client, and they had done a media buy with uh, FX. And Chris was on the show with Ryan Murphy, one of his first, I think, big hits. Sorry, Ryan Murphy, if you had more before that. But it was uh, Nip Tuck. And I, uh, I got a call. You know, they'd done a media uh, buy, which meant that FX promised that any beer would be uh, a Heineken in an FX show. And I got a call, I think, at 7 in the morning because I just dropped my toddler off at his sitter. And uh, I was on speakerphone. He's And Chris called and said, you're on speakerphone. And you're on speakerphone with so-and-so and so-and-so and, -so and Ron Murphy and all these producers in the room. And you know what they... They want to use your Heineken. They're telling me to use your Heineken with a character who's 16 years old. He is a neo-Nazi, and he's coming home after a night of gay bashing. And I almost crashed my car. I, could tell, I know exactly where I was. I was at a stop sign, fortunately, and I did pull over. And I was younger in my career, too, and I knew I was on speakerphone. And uh, I said, you can't do that. I, just, I remember, and I was like, you can't do that. And Chris was so insistent on protecting us and in, in, you know, pushing for that ND, and they did. 
And I mean, we Heineken would have pulled their advertising. Uh, I would have really got reamed from my client. We could have lost our client as well. But that's something I think is a challenge, especially for maybe for newer prop masters and maybe not, maybe for prop masters with ex- across the board when you have that director or producer who's adamant about that storytelling has to be this particular brand. And recently it's come up in a lot of examples with uh, HBO shows specifically who are telling all sorts of departments, whether it's transportation or props, your locations, just do what you want to do. And and for brands, like, are they going to sue us? We'll deal with it. And that's a challenge for us. And we really lean into our partners on the prop side. Um, We really value that protection. I mean, Marissa, not to put the spotlight on you, but as a reflection maybe of a newer generation, is that something you encounter with brands? And how do you how do you feel when you have to put that foot down and you have that pressure of a room maybe saying, yeah, let's go for it with this, uh, this spirit in a 17-year-old kid, you know? I have been lucky so far to be on pretty respectful shows um, where if we have a placement deal or there are some rules that accompany certain product placement, then like the show just has to respect it. Um, I've never, I've never had any pushback on that. Um, because usually a company will provide a written mm-hmm. guidelines, like a written guidelines. And when you submit that, if, if you need it, if you need the receipts, if someone's trying to push back, you know, that's, that's kind of it. Uh, so maybe, maybe I've just gotten lucky yeah, that well, I haven't, I haven't really had to fight too hard for that. People are just like, oh, okay, we can't do that. We'll use an ND thing. Well, I think I, it's kind of hopefully common sense, but that, I mean, there are plenty of platforms, uh, and distributors though, who we, we don't, we can't provide guidelines and the, and it's, you know, our participation, we knowingly go in trusting, having to trust our partners and know that there's a risk that they could be used inappropriately. So yeah, I think it, it does depend on, on certain platforms, but I also mostly tend to work on um, like comedy TV mm-hmm. where it, it's yeah. it's unlikely that a brand is going to be used in a disparaging way unless it's the butt of a joke. And then we'll usually know ahead of time or it's improv and I can go up to our EPR script supervisor or uh, whoever needs to know and say, oh, right, we can't use that take. Yeah, well, you, ju- you just made fun of a brand. Yeah. And, and you know, maybe we, yeah, maybe it still happens, you know, because it's part of that storytelling, you know, but that makes sense if it's a comedy. Hope if you've been a partner with all the product placement agencies I've ever worked for, whether it was the Catalyst Group or, or Norm Marshall and now Ben, and I know you've been there for a lot of different brands, and whether it's product placement or just something else that you think is unsafe. How do you, have you handled that? This is kind of a threefold question because there's so many answers to this. Over 38 years in product placement from its inception, pretty much I was there in its inception with Producers Association, with Rogers and Cowan. They were one of the first. And then Cliff McMullen opened UPP. You know, Coca-Cola's always been there. But there are things that a property master, when you're reading the script and you see something that is a brand or a product, If you're on a network show, there's a common sense rule. You learn through mistakes or you learn through other people's mistakes. Um, One mistake I learned from was from a guy that I worked for. He had went to UPP, got some cereal boxes for a kitchen scene where, you know, people were eating breakfast and it was at Amblin. And it's legendary, this story, because it changed his career. It was the movie was called Arachnophobia, and they, in post-production, had spiders coming out of the cereal box. And this property master pretty much lost his career. He was done. They sued, uh, the cereal company sued. I mean, even though he had a written release from UPP, and he didn't technically know that there was going to be spiders coming out of this thing. Mm -hmm. Um, At least that's the way I remember the story. No, I've heard the story from Norm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, that was kind of my red flag for everything moving forward. That happened in 1991. And so everything moving forward from that point forward, I had to really calculate what this was going to be. You mentioned HBO. 
HBO doesn't say do whatever you want to do. HBO says if you do not go and reach out to a product placement company, you can do whatever you want because you're buying it off the shelf. They have a buy off the shelf rule, which I, I believe that if it's being used in the intended in which it was being used, that's fine. But my last show that I did, I had a 14-year-old on roller skates going into a mini market taking vodka labeled real vodka and pouring it into a Sprite bottle, going up to the counter, paying her $1.25 and going out and getting drunk with her friends. It sounds like 12 kinds of nightmare. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, okay, this is not good. And I went to legal and I said, okay. And CJ and I started making up like fake labels. And I went to ISS and got some of their good looking labels. And we just started making them up for our show and tell. And they said, no, no, no we are using real labels. And I said, no, 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 we can't. I said, <laughs> we're going to get pants suit off of us. They said, no, 14-year-olds drink. They do this. 14-year-olds take vodka, pour it into a bottle and do this. And I'm like, okay. Scared me to death. I still have the emails in case it ever shows up that this is what I was told to do. But that is their claim. I don't know that it's good or bad. I think that this is their mantra all the way through every show. I don't think that they have had any major lawsuits like arachnophobia, but I do know that they put me at ease and they said, you just can't worry about this. You can't worry about this. And I did get a phone call right before the series released from my producer production manager. And he's like, you bought that stuff, right? I said, I bought every bit of it. I turned in the receipts. Mm -hmm. He's like, okay. So people were still a little nervous, yeah. you know, but the show is an acclaimed hit. I mean, how many times did I go after stuff? And I, I went to this watch company in Italy for um, Eraser. And I talked to this Italian company and no, no, we can only do the, the product place with Mr. Stalloni. And I said, this is Arnold Schwarzenegger. I said, do you know what he did for the Humvee? I said, come on, we need your watch in this movie. He, he, this is the one he wants to wear. No, no. So we got around it. We bought the watches. Mm -hmm. And later on, you never saw it on Sly and Daylight, but you saw Arnold's all the way through Eraser. And we got thanks. And they were like very happy that, you know, we kind of did this on our own, but Arnold was determined. And so that's a product placement, but it's not a product placement. It became one. We're going to move into this, you know, authenticity, you know, and that I think that, and not to be talking all about product placement and brands, but, you know, we talk, I talk a lot about how brands are your shorthand. It's so important to tell your character story. And we talk a lot uh, internally to our clients and it needs to be authentic and it shouldn't be disruptive. And you had a really great piece of advice or quote that your dad talked about props fitting, which is I've stolen it. And, I, and I've been saying it with my own company and with our own clients when they want to be like that Italian company dictating, well, we want to do this in the film and they don't have a choice. We are participating, luckily, in, in that storytelling and they should trust that process and be so grateful for it. And um, but we, we say something similar, but I thought it was so succinct what your, what your dad, I think you said, gave you that advice early on about props and fitting. The incident that... that keyed that uh, quote, which I'll tell you in a moment, was I was working at Sony, TriStar Columbia, um, and I was doing the net, and we had a huge scene where we had all these background that were going to be walking through San Francisco with candles for a, a vigil. And production wanted to pay, have a product placement company come in and actually give us free food for the background because it was a lot of people and it would help the budget. And so I went to the director and I, and the production designer and I said, I'm being told by the product placement department at TriStar that I have to put McDonald's in Sandra Bullock's hotel room with her while she's watching TV and, and drying her hair. And I said, are you okay with this? And they're like, where would she have gotten the McDonald's? Why would that be there? I don't know. We're not okay with this. And there was a butting of heads between me and the department head for product placement at Sony. And I did not step down. And he did not win. The director won. At the end of the day, we made it work. 
but I'm the department head. I am the property master on this film. It is my duty to report to the director and to the production designer this style that is now being added into the story that's not even in the script, but it's something that has been promised already. And that, I think that was the thing that irritated me the most is that it was already promised and I was told that it had to be in there. And I'm like, well, their, their job is to be a resource for you. Your job, you know, they're, they're, that production resource, whether it's at a network or uh, a studio or an independent film, that role, and I think sometimes recently it's gotten a little bit confusing, especially for maybe a newer generation of um, department heads, whether it's props or it's sets or it's wardrobe, their job is to ask what, how they can help and get you that help. You know, so yeah, you're always, nodding your head. I think that you've had some experiences, Marissa. I always try to make best friends with the clearance person, with standards and practices, and with ad sales because you have to ask them about every single brand that you put in front of a camera. Every single thing, unless it's like a Netflix show, but if it's like a partnership Netflix show, you still have to ask about every single real product, even. ND things you might get from a prop house, you still have to run everything by them. So I don't know, on my last show, the clearance person and I, we, we would have like hour long phone calls where sometimes they would just like devolve into how your day was or, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, you're going to France, you should visit this place. Or, you know, like we really became friends because we were just talking constantly. And she really appreciated it because we were just making each other's lives easier by catching things ahead of time by asking about things ahead of time. I think we had like a two week long conversation about a vibrator prop um, because- This is a whole other different type of podcast now. <laughs> well, I mean, it was, it was really funny. It was a really funny scene in my last show that involved like a little egg vibrator and we couldn't use a real thing. So we had to fabricate it from scratch, which included the name. And we went through like 50 different names because there's so many existing products out there. And then I had to paint something that is like covered in a silicone, which is an impossible task. And, you know, like a blended silicone, which nothing, no paint sticks to that, but we had to paint it anyway. And it was just, it was like a monumental task. And I was talking to our poor clearance person about this vibrator for two weeks and both of us had done so many Google searches on <laughs> on vibrators. I feel like the the suggested, like you know, when when your computer is listening to you and it suggests products for you, I feel like it was totally skewed for at least a month. But you have to become partners with those people because that's how you don't end up in fights. That's how you end up on a team where you have to go to your writers and say you have to rewrite this moment because the joke you wrote isn't gonna pass through legal. It helps to have those people on your side and to do it in a way that's like fun and friendly. You're talking about the skill set that I think the audience, the end consumer has no idea what goes into that one prop, which it sounds like it was really critical to the story. And the absence of props I mean, I know you're both on the PMG uh, board. I hope you're a, you're a founding member. And I'm excited about how the work that you're going to be doing in the future will elevate the role, hopefully, of props. Hopefully more money for you guys, too. But also, I think it's great for the audience to understand. You know, the audiences know what wardrobe does. Audience knows what makeup does and prosthetics and hair and this and that. But in the absence of, if you were to take out a prop and all your, your content, the story wouldn't move forward. I mean, it's so important. Yeah, I've always heard that the best props are the ones you don't notice mm-hmm. or the ones that disappear. If you don't see that it's a prop, that means that the prop master and their team have done their job well. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think that too much kitsch really can take you out of the film. You know, if, if I, I worked with this decorator, Victor Zolfo, and we did... Um, First, we did Benjamin Button. We did 100 Years, which was pretty phenomenal. But then we did Zodiac, was our first job together. And we were going back in time. We were going to 1969. And sometimes crews and, 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 and the designers or the 
property master or the decorator tend to want to force you into 1969. And Victor and I made a collaborative effort to always keep the kitsch out of our scenes and have everything blend. And it can be an orange, because that was a color palette then, or the avocado green or the harvest gold, but it had to be right in the right place. It could be a light blue wall phone. You know, it, it, but it just needed to not go, Hey, I'm over here looking at you, you know, and that's where, exactly. And that's where dad always said, make the prop fit the movie, not the movie fit the prop. Talk about the research that goes into your role, you know, for, for, uh, whether it's a hit, you know, whether it's a period project or a current, you know, it, Again, that's not something I think is understood, especially by audiences and maybe from directors. I mean, they are writers. Maybe they don't value the amount of research that goes into it. But you mentioned David Fincher. And even from my side as an outside vendor and not participating, you know, on day to day, even for us on a David Fincher film, I, I, I wrote it down. When uh, we did Mindhunter, we were, we were uh, supplying with Bushmills for Mindhunter and we actually had to substantiate those labels and that bottle with uh, pictures from the archives from Ireland, from the Bushmills uh, company in Ireland. You're, and you're nodding your heads like, yes, you do, because it was David Fincher. And I, as I, that hadn't happened very much. And then Gone Girl, before that, with Dunkin' Donuts, we actually had to have like a certified letter from our client saying, here's what it looked like with pictures like certifying for So when that prop master did the show and tell, he was like, I can guarantee you this is the right thing. And not every show is like that, but I was very, um, I mean, maybe a little bit honored to be a part of that process too, but it was a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really fun when you research something so intensely and then you actually find the thing or you actually can make a replica of the thing like that. It's so, I don't know. It's like such an excellent moment Yeah. or when you find the example of the real thing, make the replica or find the actual real thing. And then the director decides to go with something else anyway. Mm-hmm. That also happens. Heartbreaking. Like, you know, it's a little heartbreaking, but it happens and yeah. that's how it goes. Well, well, so you know, you did the job well. Right, right. You feel purposeful. Yeah. You, you know, talking about show and tells, like, what's your advice for a successful show and tell? You know, my show and tells were always a walk through the story. My father always said, read the script, get on it right away, find the hard stuff, get the hard stuff approved, cleared legally, manufactured, get it done. Get the art department to commit. A lot of times art department doesn't want to think about a certain prop that needs to be made, but you want to get it off your plate because it's one of the bigger pieces that you need to deal with. Well, if the production designer doesn't have time, go to the art director, get it done. And my third case at the, at Number three, try. I go, okay, fine. I am going to get my own designer. So I might run out to ISS and say, hey, John, help me or, you know, design this. And I'll take it there and I'll have them approve it. And then I go to build because I can't wait and I won't wait. It's unfortunate. But the problem is, is that if I wait based on your schedule, then my schedule falls in the toilet. We have a really great opportunity as property masters to begin a show and tell by getting the actors and characterization of the actors. You know, um, with David, with, uh, with Button, I did my show and tell with him in New Orleans. I had everything shipped from Premiere and Ham Prop Room and ISS and History for Hire. I had it all shipped out there. We did a full warehouse. We laid it all out. We had dozens of wheelchairs. We had dozens of, of old hearing horn, from hearing horns to electric ones because we did 100 years. But the good news was is that we took the Sears and Roebuck catalog, which can be five to 10 years on either side, still that you can use it. And that was kind of our Bible. We didn't go to Google. We don't, you know, there's so many, so much misinformation on the internet that it's really just better to go find really good information by going to an old catalog or by grabbing old newspapers or by looking at things that way because people write what they want to write. I want to take a beat on that. That's really great advice because I think the tendency for all of us is to just Google something. I mean, there's legitimate stuff on Google, but you can't take every bit of Google as legitimate. 
it just isn't in my my wheelhouse. It wasn't something I chose. And I loved my Sears and Roebuck and my Montgomery Wards catalogs. Oh my God. And so I would show Fincher. I would just make pictures of it and I'd show Fincher. This is what a hot water bottle looked like in 1908. You know, a hot water bottle in 1908 was ceramic. He's like, what? I'm like, seriously. And then you move into the red one that mom had hanging on the back of the door in the fifties because it had dual purpose. You know, there's, you know, you, you, there things like that. And he didn't really know all those periods. So it was our job to know more than him. You know, Martin Scorsese, here's a great story. We are shooting out in, out in, we're doing the aviator. Another one of my favorite films. Both of those films won Oscars in production design. So they are my two proudest works as far as the look of a film. But we're out there in the middle of San Bernardino Airport, and we have this scene with the XF-11, and Howard is in the XF-11, and all of his publicity shots, he's wearing the fedora, and he's got a hand mic in his hand in the cockpit of his newly built XF-11. And so we're, we've got this mock-up, we got this, you know, thing we're doing out there. And I go up to the, get on the ladder and I go up to Leo and I put on his leather cap and I put the throat mic around his neck. And all of a sudden, Martin, Marty is going, whoa, 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 wait, 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 what are you doing? What are you doing? And I said, getting him ready for the flight. And he's like, no, no, no. He did not wear that. He wore the fedora and the th- and had a handheld mic. I said, not while he was flying. Those were taxi shots on the runway. Those were just publicity shots. No, no, no. Joe Reedy, who's his first AD. Joe, call the Smithsonian right now. Find out what the hell. We shut production down for half hour, 45 minutes. My dad's on the other end of the thing because I did the show up in Canada. And when we came back, dad had done a few movies with Marty. So he wanted to come back and play. So here's dad. They call him over and Dennis is like, no, she, she's got the right. She's, she's right. And so then Joe comes back about 45 minutes later and comes up to Marty and says, nope, hope's right. He wore the leather hat. It is our job as the property master to be Right to have the right information, to not half measure anything. We have to know so that when Martin Scorsese comes up to you and challenges what you're doing, you are absolutely right. Now, if Marty says, you know what? I don't want to wear the leather cap and I don't want to wear the throat mic. I want to have him have the fedora on and the mic in his hand. Sure, Marty, whatever you want. What did he say after that to you? (laughs) I'll tell you what. He was very... There was no humble that showed up like, oh, she was right. It was, okay, let's get back to work. Do you think he could appreciate that for the storytelling? Oh, absolutely. authenticity that, you know. Well, and he knew one more time, he trusted my father all these years, gangs in New York and and casino and, and things that my dad did with them. And he knew one more time that you could trust us, that we were doing our job, that we knew our job. But it's totally his film. If you want to change it and have them on, we'll do whatever you want. But it's my duty as a property master to give you the correct information. Corroborated by the Smithsonian. Right? Right? <laughs> if this was a, an audio, you could see our mouths are open over here. Audience, you could, like, I'm, my mouth was agape. It was a holy shit moment for me. It was like, oh, no, really? Ah, gosh. And you're, and you're praying that you've got it right. <laughs> you go back to your books and your research books and all the pictures, and you go back to everything. And I mean, you're panicking in those 45 minutes, praying to God that, you know, I don't want him to be wrong, but I certainly don't want to be wrong either. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, Marissa, how, who taught you how to get prepped for uh, that show and tell, the very first one? A couple of people. I've mentioned Nicole Ruby a few times, but she, she puts together like a giant research book that she shares with producers, directors, anyone who might want to attend a show and tell, and even people who don't, she shares this research book. And it has research, but it also has photos of props. So there's like something to follow along with. And then she sets things up on tables and walks people through and you talk about stuff. But my first network show, I was very freaked out about the first show and tell. It was when a lot of things are were still happening. On, things are A lot of things are still happening on Zoom, but it was when almost everything was still on Zoom. And we were doing like a weird Zoom in-person hybrid kind of show and tell. And um, Hope offered to, is that the right 
How did we, how did we come up with this? Um, you asked me if I would, you know, kind of peek in on your show and tell, or, or would I give you some advice on what you put together for your show and tell? I don't know that we went as far as, as getting approvals at that point, but it was definitely, would you, you know, can I share my, my fears with you? Yeah. Kind of in a sense. We, we talked about it cause I was pretty freaked out. Not that I'd like never done a show and tell, but this, I don't know why this particular one freaked me out a lot. And so Hope said, why don't I sit in on your show and tell like on zoom, I'll have my mic off. I'll be off camera, but I'll just watch and I'll give you some feedback afterwards. It was like one of the greatest things for my confidence. I think that's ever happened. But, um, she, we got approval from the UPM. She signed an NDA. I sent her the script and my breakdown. We talked about it beforehand. You caught, I think one or two things that I hadn't thought of, which was excellent. And then I went into my show and tell hope was there. I went through the whole thing. Um, it went better than I thought it would. And at the end of it, you know, I called her up and she gave me some feedback and it was mostly really positive and there were a few things to work on, but more than anything, the thing I got out of it was confidence. I feel like, Hope, you really helped me feel much more confident about presenting what I had come up with and my ideas to people I was like at that point, like still a little afraid of. And I feel like that was like a huge step for me. And also our production designer came up to me after the show and tell, and he was like, what was Hope Parrish doing on that call? <laughs> you <laughs> now, rocked it. You, you now totally rocked it. big guns in here. But, but I'd say you already have confidence that you were open to that feedback. You know, a lot of people think they know it all, you know, even if they're just starting out in, in any career. And to be open to feedback and taking it and learning from it, I think that's a really strong skill. Because, it takes courage yeah, it to, does, to, you know. to reach out to someone that maybe some might be afraid of the, because of the length of time in the industry. And, you know, people never want to be embarrassed about their own abilities. And it took courage, I, I believe. And I always want to be welcoming to you and to other uh, prop masters that, you know, yeah, I mean, somebody helped me. Right, right. But it does. I, I think you should give yourself more credit, Marissa, because you... You must have been a really great student in school. I usually got A's, yeah. So, okay. You want to be better. You want always, to learn. I know? do. I always I always want to I do always want to learn and be better. And I feel like that's that's a commonality among prop masters is that we're always learning. We always sure. want to know what you know, what this other person knows. And I feel like that's part of the like shift in the shift in the I, I can't think of the word, but like Well, think about this. And, and maybe you've experienced this. I always tell people, they say, well, what do you do? I said, I'm a property master. Oh, you manage real estate? No. Um, <laughs> I know a lot of, a little bit of, I, I know a lot of stuff. How do I always say A little it? bit about a lot of things. A little bit about a lot of stuff. And, you know, one day you're on a medical show, the next day you're on a fire show, the next day you're in a fantasy show, the next day you're on a full manufacturing show with weapons and guns and whatever. You know, it every day was different. And I think if you're like me and Marissa and Chris Call and Nicole Ruby, and we have characters that need that type of change that... We, I don't think any of us could sit in an office and do the same job for 38 years, but you could definitely throw me on a plane, put me in a bus, shove me in a van, do whatever. And, 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 and I'm a happy girl. I mean, yeah. seriously. I think that's what, if you can have a job that keeps you learning, it keeps you young. Maybe you don't physically feel young all the time on 14 hour days, but I'm sure that that's what I love working with um, you all. It's because every day is a different challenge and a different opportunity. And I love hearing about your process. I love hearing about your, your character development through props. And that's what probably makes it so fun. 